0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the Pink Sheets Farmer Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith, executive editor Nielsen Hobbs, and for the first time on the podcast, senior editor Joanne Eglovich. Vaccinations continue and we're encouraged to see eligibility ages dropping. I know I'll be circling April 27th on my calendar when everyone in Maryland, 16 and older, becomes eligible. The end may actually be in sight. Which leads us which leads us to our first story this week. It looks like the FDA is considering making changes to its inspection practices once the pandemic ends. Joanne, I guess some sponsors are mad that foreign facilities get advanced notice and domestic counterparts do not.
1: <laughs> uh yeah, you could you could say that. I was uh I was listening to a house hearing um, just the other week and uh congressmen from both sides sides of the aisle were very critical of the fact that fda pre-announces inspections for foreign facilities but not domestic facilities a lot of it is because of resource constraints and to get people over there and visas uh it's a logistical um, nightmare so they have to actually um pre-announce inspections so they're usually given about 12 weeks and uh, domestic companies are not given uh such pre-announcement. And FDA is coming under harsh criticism for not giving the same courtesy to domestic firms as they do to foreign firms. So, they're finding more problems and in inspections in domestic companies, probably not surprisingly because they're they're not given a chance to maybe fix up their mess. So, anyway, um, yeah. So, uh, one of the chief um, enforcement officials at FDA just said that FDA during the pandemic, they're kind of revisiting a bunch of programs, including their inspection program, and they're considering, they're having internal meetings where they're actually considering giving um, domestic firms a heads up that they will be inspected, they will be subject to a surveillance inspection. Um, the GAO just came out with a report highly critical of the fact that um, FDA uh, does give such pre announcement to foreign firms, but not domestic firms. So, anyway, it's sort of a quagmire, and FDA says, says that they're, they're also staffing constraints. They just, they don't have the staff for the foreign inspection program, so they also can't, um, it's, it's more of a logistical problem, and they have uh, problems with the FDA budget. They just don't have enough money to do, um, well, I guess they're having problems recruiting people. Uh, to do foreign inspections, so they they do have to give such pre-announcement. It's a logistical
0: necessity. So
1: anyway, that's kind of the latest on the FDA inspection front.
0: It's it's a, it's an interesting issue because you know those of us that have, you know, watched the agency for a while know that they they do surprise inspections for a reason, and it's because they don't want to give firms a chance to you know fix everything or you know hide stuff that they're that they're doing wrong, but I, I, yeah, th- and this in and this while I was reading your story, this kind of just popped in my head. Yes, I I wonder what or how much you actually lose by not having the surprise element of the inspection. And it, I know that's that sounds weird, but like how many times do they actually go into a facility and find a bunch of stuff that they wouldn't have found if they had told them, you know, a, you know, in two weeks we're coming, you know, something yeah. like that it's, it's, yeah. you know, you just wonder if that's going to be part of the analysis and maybe, maybe they find that they don't find as many deficiencies or issues, um, you know, when they're announced as as opposed to when they're not announced. I don't know. It's uh, Yeah,
1: I, I mean, I think if you have really basic GMP problems, it's going to take more than six weeks to fix up your act, you know, so, yeah. Um, I think it might be hard even with six weeks and I also want to say in other industries, the food industry, uh, you know, people uh, are inspected with most other industries are subject to surprise inspections. So this isn't um, something that is sort of beyond the pale unreasonable, you know, on FDA's part, but it it is kind of a huge uh, disconnect uh, now. so, yeah, it, it's kind of interesting, and I um, I just uh, – I think this has always been – this has always been part of FDA's inspection program. I'm just – I'm surprised that this hasn't really been raised before unless I'm missing something in the history books. <laughs> so, um, anyway, it, it's an issue, and it's out there, and I think Congress – they gave um, FDA more money to beef up foreign inspections to maybe – get more people in the foreign offices so they don't have to like import people here to go to maybe India or China. So anyway, um, it's an interesting issue. It's not going away anytime soon. Um, but it raises interesting issues. I agree with you.
2: Yeah, Joanne, I mean, it is sort of, as you're saying, it's really this uh, perpetual tension between, uh, um, you know, standards in the U.S. for manufacturing versus standards uh, um, elsewhere. And, uh it's interesting to me that Congress seems to have settled on, or at least sort of at this hearing, settled on the idea that sort of, kind of that uh, the the problem is kind sort of the uh, the U.S. standards as opposed to the uh, um, the foreign standards. Or given the uh, discussions were kind of uh, you know were sort of kind of uh, put into relief by the, uh, the pandemic, you'd think that sort of there might be sort of a constituency in uh, um, in Congress for uh, you know saying that uh, um, U.S. manufacturing is the uh, the gold standard, and if uh, um, you know, form manufacturing can't uh, meet that uh, benchmark, then uh, we shouldn't let it in. Let it in the U.S. And so, uh, um, you can see an argument that that says that sort kind of if uh, FDA isn't able to do a um, surprise inspection of a uh, form facility, that uh, foreign facilities shouldn't be allowed to uh, um, to import into the uh, United States. But uh, they seem to have gone the other direction and said that uh, um, the uh, the U.S. Uh, surveillance system to sort of adapt to uh, what, the US, what the FDA is able to do elsewhere. I just thought that it was interesting that they sort of kind of uh, went in that direction.
1: Right, well, one last point. There's this whole Made in America initiative trying to bring American manufacturing back overseas, but it's almost a disincentive to get manufacturing sites to locate here when they might be uh, kind of subject to a dual standard. Why locate here More more stringent environmental controls and regulatory controls—that is the argument. Than just you know, if you're abroad, at least you'll get pre-announced. So anyway, it's kind of counterintuitive to the whole uh, "Made in America" initiative that's that's kind of being promoted by well, at least the last administration, and to a certain extent, maybe this administration as well. So yeah.
3: One recently- thing I was um, thinking about reading your story, Joanne, is Is it also mentioned some of the sort of digital tools being used now, or by other countries, like? using, you know, sort of cameras, essentially, to watch remotely. And so I was wondering if they're going to be able to sort of, if they'd be able to replace some of the sort of unexpected nature of surprise inspections by sort of just having certain abilities to kind of remote monitor activities in ways they couldn't before or not.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, Well, I think that's certainly out there. I mean, FDA is coming under a lot of criticism for not getting their video tools, not getting video surveillance while other regulators are. And um, maybe this would help them inspect, you know, if they actually have these tools and can – it wouldn't be such an issue for them to actually get boots-on-the-ground inspectors at the site. So, FDA is supposed to come out with a guidance on – Using um, television video com- video cameras um, in in the sites, but they they've been kind of promising this for a while, so I'm not sure when that's coming. So yeah, they um I think to a certain extent, you know, they need to get with the program technologically where other regulators are.
0: Um, well, and apparently, the technology is actually available. I, I've, I I talked to somebody a while back who said that they they have these kind of It's like a a kind of like a wand and the person it's connected remotely to the FDA's systems and the cameras are in there but you can't tell where they're looking. It's like a three sixty camera, but so but you can't see where the lens is going. So you don't so it's hard to like, you know, say only point the camera at parts of the facility you want them to see. So they they apparently have some kind of technology that they think could work, but yeah, it's been it's been difficult trying to kind of get get uh, you know get it get it implemented and get it in use or even get it <laughs> tested and validated.
1: I wonder if EMA has that. They've been doing a lot of inspections through use of these tools. But anyway, it's uh, yeah, it, it, the technology's there for the asking. So, yeah, you raised some interesting mm-hmm. points.
0: Well, remaining on the safety front, we're going to take a look at what a what is a long list of safety programs in place to ensure adverse events with the COVID-19 vaccines are detected. Sarah, you took a look at all of these and distilled them into a re- what we thought was a really cool infographic.
3: Yeah, I, I, so um you know, sort of one of the trade-offs of using the emergency use authorization pathway with the vaccine is that FDA and other parts of the US um, you know, public health system are trying to um, ramp up um, even the usual um, pharmacovigilance practices. Um, and there's quite a lot of systems um, in play here. So try to kind of break them down, um, including, you know, some new efforts. Um, one is, you know, they're trying to take advantage of technology and there's a new sort of smartphone-based check-in um program you can sign up for after you get your vaccine and um they basically kind of check in with you to try and get you to report any aes at certain time points um and they'll use and then you know the cdc can use that um to then sort of look for signals of events um and you know, like a a lot of this this type of, you know, surveillance, you know, is not new, but um, there's been some initial signs that, you know, there may be a lot more public attention to it now. Um, FDA at a recent meeting was just talking about the um, dramatic increase in reports to their vaccine adverse event system. Um, In a normal year, they said they get 40,000 to 50,000 reports. um, And this year, they've already had, you know, three to four times that, largely, they attribute that to the interest and visibility in COVID vaccines and other kind of experts in this space do feel like, um, the attention being paid to these vaccines and any potential side effects is going to, might create a trend where consumers are just more aware and thinking about kind of the safety risk benefit balance of all medications and treatments they take. And that, um, you know, might, um, impact kind of reporting and monitoring and perhaps the questions people have about their products going forward. So I think that's a really interesting trend. Obviously, it's it, it's a, as we've seen, you know, this week, I think with, you know, the European Union's evaluation of AstraZeneca's vaccines and um, potential clotting risks, it's a very kind of complicated uh, fra- process to go through this and to figure out, you know, what signals are actually real and may be related to the product and what is simply, you know, just um, a signal and events that would be happening, that happen, you know, kind of regardless And their sort of background rates, um, particularly when you have huge numbers of people getting vaccinated. And, you know, we have lots of other health events and problems that have nothing to do with COVID-19 and COVID-19 vaccinations. So um, certainly something that, you know, the public health World and sponsors and FDA have to kind of be really delicate about communicating.
0: Are are all these different systems kind of doing different things, so to speak? I mean, is there? I guess I wonder if there's like overlap, or if you know, you you lose the potential to pick up a signal because you know it's coming in in the best system and not being reported into VARS or, you know, something, you know, I mean, that's oversimplifying, but, you know, I mean, is there, is there a worry (laughs) about that at all of that? You know, you have a bunch of people all doing the same thing when it could be just one big, you know, kind of database.
3: Yeah. So I, I, I sort of have sort of wondered intellectually to myself, like the pros and cons of kind of all these different separate systems. There are, I think like strengths and weaknesses to them. One of the big things is the, um, Difference is sort of the um, populations. So, you know, there's an FDA um, CMS system that's looking at, you know, the Medicare population um, versus BEST, is, you know, um, probably not going to look, end up with that sort of um, population as much because they're partnered more with, um, you know, health systems and data bases that might target more of the private, um, you know, sector health system in the US. Um, so in some ways, you could see it sort of complementary, um, I guess. Um, and some of them are doing different things, right? So we know, like, bears is a, um, can really only kind of capture signals, you know, we don't really often know, like, the veracity, uh, you know, how, the likelihood something is related to the vaccine and so forth. There's, um, versus other, um, systems like vaccine safety data link are, um, they're sort of going out and more proactively monitoring, um, by, you know, doing analyses and rapid cycle analyses and kind of searching for pre-specified safety, um, events that have happened with other vaccines. So some of them are doing different things, different populations. There's, um, one of the newer sort of partnerships here is with um, a, a group of um, nursing, skilled nursing facilities and so forth to really look at that population, which, you know, is quite different maybe from your general um, population. So I think it it's complementary, but it will be interesting to um, see, I think, maybe in a few years, right, is there a better way to sort of combine resources and Not duplicate what doesn't need to be duplicated, but I think some of this is just the nature of like we have a very fragmented healthcare delivery system in the U.S. Um, So once you have that, um, you you get into the need to maybe pull from different these different data partnerships.
1: Sarah, I just have a question. I mean, they're doing four to three to four times the number of reporting. Um, Is this Kind of overwhelming. I mean, did FDA have to hire a lot of a lot of new staff or develop a whole lot of new IT infrastructures to accommodate this? I mean, this is a huge volume of reporting. I'm just um, wondering the the impact on the IT systems and the, the the staffing at FDA. This is this is huge. I mean, forty thousand and it's grown three to four times. That's abso- that's absolutely stunning, and um, all these new systems that are in place and uh, I love the infographics, by the way. I thought they were just terrific, really, really good. It really explained things well um, and how they sort of, um, I guess the mother of all these systems is the theirs. you know, that's been around for a long time. So it's interesting to see how the these different systems have evolved, but um, I'm just wondering about the volume, whether that's, you know, how that's impacted FDA's IT structure.
3: Yeah, I haven't heard, um, any reports that they have added any staff or that they're running into any problems because they don't have enough staff to process this? But that's certainly a good question, probably worth following up on. Um, and I think, as I mentioned, like some of one of the newer systems, vSafe sort of interlinks with VARES. So, vSafe mm-hmm. is sort of the method of kind of, you could almost think of it as encouraging more reports to VAERS, but the VAERS program is the one that really follows up on anything that they, that's flagged through vSAFE. that's kind of seen as potentially clinically important. Um, and of course, FDA and CDC partner on VAERS, but I think that's something we've sort of seen in all elements of COVID-19 with FDA yeah. is that it has just, um, ballooned their workload in expected unexpected ways and um you know c- figuring out kind of how FDA can you know do all do all of this new work, um, balance it with their existing workload, which we know it's not like they were you know sitting idle without stuff to do prior to the pandemic and kind of figure out how to maintain that pace um going forward again, we're one year into this so you know it might be, reasonable for people to kind of be firing on all cylinders for a certain percentage of time but at some point you know you want to make sure your your workforce can kind of take a breath so i think this is something we've been tracking on a lot of fronts including i think um around reviews as we're going to talk about a little later in the podcast interesting
2: yeah so, i feel i may in fact be stepping on the uh transition here but i just wanted to uh to, to our discussion of uh, review times and uh and such, you, you you teed it up perfectly there, uh, 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 Sarah. But uh, um, I'm going to uh, I'm going to uh, mess things up and just sort of kind of reemphasize one of the points that you were making uh, when you started uh, um, talking before that I thought was very interesting is for sort of kind of that, that uh, you know this could kind of get people to think more about the safety of uh, you know vaccines and medicines in uh, in general. There's always uh, um, you know this sort of kind of this, this tension between sort of kind of uh, um, uh, what, uh, you know, people think that the, the the product should do when they're in the market and sort of what they actually uh, end up doing. And if it's sort of kind of, uh, you know, encourages uh, more adverse events, not just for uh, vaccines, but for uh, um, other medications as well, it could sort of kind of, uh, um, you know, sort of obviously, sort of enhance the uh, um, science and practice of medicine, but sort of kind of perhaps sort of change people's opinions of, uh, of uh, drugs as well. If uh, um, this becomes a uh, this becomes a focus, so it'll be interesting to see if this sort of spilled over into additional reporting, not just in uh, in uh, in uh, in bears but in fairs as uh, as well. So uh, uh, something something to watch.
0: Well, That and better and just better quality reporting overall. I mean, you know, the, a lot of the times you you hear stories about how they get reports about issues, but then you know they're the, they're half filled or they have the wrong product name on them or you know or something along those lines so maybe this will you know encourage people to you know to you know to to be a, to do a better job at actually sending the report you know filling out the reports when they when they do send them so finally today as Matt and Sarah both uh, teased we're going to take a look at Fda performance during the first nine months of the pandemic uh, the agency recently posted data on its on-time decision rates meaning the number of times they took action on an application on or before the goal date. As many had predicted, there was a decline as the double whammy of workload from the pandemic and non-pandemic applications weighed on the agency. The on-time rate for original applications in the PDUFA program, which includes new drugs, slipped from 98% to 93% by the end of the reporting period. And the on-time rate in Gadufa, which is generic drugs, dropped from 94% to 91%. However, the real drop came with biosimilars. After being on time for all decisions in the first quarter of the pandemic, the rate dropped to 67% by the final final quarter of the reporting period. Now, the FDA said that that, de- that decrease has to do with application volume. The Bazufa program receives only a handful of applications compared to padufa and gadufa, and one miss can drive the on-time percentage way down. However, as we looked at historical figures, the agency had a perfect on-time record for biosimilar applications for the first for two of the most recent years uh, available. So the que- I, I read one commentary on the figures saying that the decreases were actually not that bad. So I guess my question is, you know how do we take this information? I, I think we all suspected that the twenty four seven work schedule that would that kind of came in during the pandemic would eventually catch up to the FDA. Do we assume this is temporary and will resolve once the pandemic eases, or you know, you know, is there, you know, do it, do we, is there a cause for concern here? I mean, is there, you know, do, should people start, you know, making, you know, adjustments to planning and so forth? How, how do you, how do you view this information?
2: Hmm. <laughs> I guess I would. Uh, well. I would. Uh, I would look at it as a. Um, more, uh, um, more concerning than through kind of than perhaps, uh, oh, they, uh, um, everything was fine, but, uh, also I, I, feel that it is for kind of, uh, uh, temporary, uh, you know, obviously you don't want to be uncharitable to FDA and, you know, they were above 90% in, uh, you know, uh, um, two of the major programs and, uh, um, you know, uh, were kind of, uh, um, explain why they missed it in uh, um, in biosimilars as well, but the fact that for kind of everything dipped suggests that it's not just for kind of some sort of random happenstance of a uh, of a bad uh, um, you know sort of basufa quarter, but uh, there's more going on than uh, um, than just uh, a small sample size uh, there because the other uh, program slipped as well, uh, um, and uh, um, you know I think uh, FDA deserves uh, amazing credit for sure kind of uh, keeping things together as they um, as they have, but uh, I think it's just uh, um, it's too much to ask of them to do uh, do such ex- exceptional work on sort of all fronts for uh, for so long. But I feel sort of, kind of once uh, um, the, uh, um, the 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 COVID pressures are behind them uh, uh, to a degree, and uh, um, you know uh, who's to say that sort of, kind of that the uh, um, you know the chances are going to get back to uh, together in person to the extent so that they can. Uh, you know could smooth things as well and then they'll sort of be back to uh their normal uh you know exemplary standards obviously uh, um you know they're they're still getting a's in the uh, and padufa but i think for kind of everyone was uh um, used to this, for of kind of near perfect performance, which is uh, you know sort of they've been they've been over delivering for too long that people sort of have adjusted their expectations upward for the uh, for the agency, which is in the uh, um, you know sort of some ways unfortunate for them, but also sort of a survey, uh, a testament to their incredible work uh, um, before the pandemic. So,
1: yeah, I kind of feel like um, you know pandemic fatigue has set in and they're kind of being stretched in all sorts of directions. So it's kind of an anomaly this period. I mean, it, it's it'll be interesting to see one two years down the road whether it sort of gets back to where it should be so um i don't know I, I think it's more of an anomaly because the of the pandemic you know blame it on the pandemic more than anything else because you know we're just living in such unusual times now and they're being um stretched pretty thin um but i guess that remains to be seen
0: yeah that the- that the the next interesting thing will be now that we've seen how the trend line is kind of going at least at least through the first few quarters of how long will it take to kind of get you know to see the kind of the dip you know trend back up again to more of what you know we, what we expect it's a uh, you know that, that I mean the, the you know the recovery could could take a you know could be more than just you know one quarter after everyone is considered vaccinated or we reach herd immunity or you know something like that it's could be this could be like a you know more of a long-term issue maybe but potentially
2: yeah, it's hard to say Sort of how much of these uh, um uh you know missed deadlines are sort kind of driven by the uh uh pandemic logistics uh you know obviously written about sort of how uh FDA will just sort of kind of uh, um, continue reviews as opposed to issuing a complete response letter if they sort of don't have uh, manufacturing information because they can't get uh, uh, somewhere to inspect and uh, you know they could sort of kind of revise that policy to uh, to improve their on time uh, you know metrics or uh, you know they could actually end up uh, relatively soon being able to get all those inspections done so it's just sort of this, it's sort of the, that uh, that's also a factor in terms of, sort of kind of the uh, you know the uh, the bookkeeping inter- uh, as to sort of how they uh, how they measure these uh, these things.
0: Yeah, you almost feel like they that, that the FDA may need some kind of like a you know I think the, the Biden administration calls their plan Build Back Better. I mean they, they might need some kind of like a pandemic recovery plan of their own to to just to kind of get things back to the way they were <laughs> you know pre pandemic or at least to get, get everyone acclimated to how things are going to work you know under you know more normal conditions.
1: Yeah, like it's if you get a lot of applications, maybe you're moving you're, you're moving better, you're moving smoother, but right now I think things are just so choppy and there's um yeah, a small number of similar applications, so you have to kind of keep that in mind, you know. When you're on a roll, you're on a roll. <laughs> Excuse me, when you're reviewing a lot, maybe you're more efficient. I don't know, it's just hard to say.
0: Yep, it's definitely something that we'll need to to look for, um, you know, to watch going forward, but uh yeah. You know, just interesting to finally see some of the data, um, you know, you know, coming out of this. Well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to the Pink Sheet Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith, Matt Hobbs, and Joanne Eglovich. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time.